everybody? How you doing out there? I'm cold, but I'm going to get warmed up in a minute. <laughs> My name is Kawenga. I am an alcoholic. And I'm glad to be here and to be sober and to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got sober June the 23rd, 1983, in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and I didn't do anything. You know, my idea of that, I had never darkened the door of an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. <clears throat> and uh, I would never have come. I couldn't ever imagine a life without a few shooters, you know, <laughs> just to get your heart started. And uh, <laughs> like the ball rolling. <laughs> and how could you ever trust anybody that says, oh no, I don't drink. <laughs> what a boring minute this is going to be, you know. My idea of Alcoholics Anonymous was, you know, like a light bulb hanging over an oil cloth table, uh, like with rubber boots and raincoats, and guys sitting there swapping tips on how you make it on the street. And of course, I was a woman of substance. <laughs> Mostly gin. <laughs> But I believe there is a power that moves through our lives, and uh, I have no explanation for it. You'll have to go to someone else for the, like, heavy spiritual stuff. There is a power, and I am here to talk about what happened, what I was like, and what happened. What happened, I learned to listen when I was new. What happened for a woman like me to live almost 12 years without a drink. What happened? I'm going to tell you what happened. And I have no explanation for it other than the power that comes through other alcoholics to a drunk like me in the program and in the fellowship and in the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what I'm going to tell you tonight. Uh, I am a native Californian. Could never think of a reason. <laughs> Have we met before? <laughs> Sounds like somebody I might have had a little rendezvous with. <laughs> I never had a date till I was like two years sober. <laughs> I always had rendezvous, you know. And it took like four sober women to get me ready for that date and to push me out the front door to this, into the arms of this poor guy so we could go like to a, I don't know, you know, a panel and then dinner or a dinner and then panel. I mean, I was a nervous wreck. I have learned a lot you know, about living here, about what normal people do. I, you know, I never wanted an average life. 
Uh, I always wanted something with a little kick to it. <clears throat> I never knew what an average life was. I am uh, a native of, of California, a native of Los Angeles, and um, I did my drinking a lot of places. Like one of my, you know, hat patterns was that I got on airplanes <laughs> when I got drunk. You know, if I wanted a pizza, the best pizza in the world is in San Francisco. You might as well go there, you know. <clears throat> or if I was looking for Mr. Goodbar. He might be in Miami. He sure as hell isn't in Denver, you know. I grew up uh, in a little town called Tahunga. And I never told anybody that till I got sober. <laughs> it's in the foothills of Los Angeles, up in the foothills, and I... It used to be like kind of a health spa. Uh, it was full of asthmatics and tuberculars. And, uh, <laughs> and that's where I grew up. I had neither one. I neither had asthma nor tuberculosis. And I grew up, you know, like a big, strapping, healthy girl. And, uh, and from the time I can remember, I knew that my, you know how everybody finds their heart's desire or their purpose in life? I knew mine was to get the hell out of Tahunga. I hated Tahunga. <clears throat> I grew up wearing bib overalls and hand-me-down shoes, and uh, trying to keep the bib straight, you know, between these two things. And I grew up where I have a birthmark on the right-hand side of my face, big purple birthmark, and uh, I grew up with that. And I grew up. Uh, my our family disease uh, was abject poverty. None of, neither my father nor my mother were alcoholic. I have two perfect sisters who run the vacuum cleaner and have curtains on their windows and make casseroles and, <laughs> and have children with manners and they're lovely and they're married and their husbands, you know, don't throw them out on the freeway on Christmas Eve. <laughs> And I immediately, you know, I just grew up knowing that these people were not right. And, uh, I, and so I knew I had to get out of Tahunga. Uh, I, I have no formal education. Uh, by that, I don't mean I haven't been educated in the ways of alcoholism and life, but I have, uh, I have no formal education. People, it was... Uh, I'm about 108 years old, so I grew up, to, I did not tap dance in here from the senior prom, trust me. <clears throat> I used to take my clothes off publicly. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I have balance in my life today. Although I was tempted when I called, I, you, I will not break his anonymity, but when I called one of your old-time homes to, from Los Angeles to find out what the weather was, I had not met his children, but uh, I, I came, when I called a voice of about 13 to 15 answered the phone, and I said, hi, I'm Quinn, you know, and I know your parents, are, can you tell me what the weather's like up there? And he said, I said, I kind of need to know what to wear, and he said, bring shorts. <laughs> 
That's what he said. You're just lucky I had a good sponsor. Anyway, uh, growing up there in Tahunga, I, uh, I went to work when I was nine. Everyone in my family did. We all needed the money. And, uh, and uh, when I was about 15, uh, I got a job out at Tahunga. And I, uh, and I went to work. The women that I worked with uh, drove me to work and brought me home. And uh, one night on the way home after my first payday on a Friday, uh, these women said, we're going to stop at a place called The Bright Spot <laughs> and cash our paycheck. I had never entered a bar. I had no idea what alcohol was. My father was a big Swede born in Minnesota and uh, the Swedish Free Church. And uh, you didn't wear lipstick, you didn't wear high heels, you didn't smoke, you didn't uh, certainly go to movies. You didn't really do anything. <laughs> I guess, but that. There were three of us, so I have to believe we did it at least three times. <clears throat> so I, I didn't know what a bar was. I didn't know what alcohol was. And these women swirled into this gravel driveway, and I fell in love with this place right away. Black. All black on the outside, and the windows were painted dark blue. There was a big gold knob on the door, and you just went into the black womb. <laughs> I love bars. I was a bar drinker, and, uh, uh, and I love them. I love the romance of alcohol. I love it in bars. I love to climb up on that red leatherette stool, you know, and look into that mirror and decide who I'm going to be that night. <laughs> but uh, that night I had no idea what it was. I just didn't know. And um, I, I went in there and I kind of watched the other women. Uh, what they ordered, and they ordered beer, you know, when you pour, it came in brown bottles then, and, and I just, I was kind of a, of a sneaky movie goer, I'd sneak out of the house, you know, or out of where we lived, we kind of grew up living not in houses, trailers and public parks, but I, uh, I'd sneak off to the movies when I could, and I always wanted to grow up, you know, to be like Rita Hayworth, or Audrey Hepburn. And in uh, that night, I looked at those brown bottles and I thought, no way would I, you know, drink out of a brown bottle in my bib overall. <laughs> and uh, I looked around down the other side of the bar and, you know, up and down the bar. It was a wonderful bar. They just tore it down about two years ago. It, it had been there since God was a baby. And it smells like it, too, you know? <laughs> I love that smell, you know, of the, like, smoke and stale whiskey and beer and that Lysol that wafts in from the men's room. <laughs> Loved it. And they had a piano in the corner. Just my kind of place. And uh, I looked down and I saw that, you know, something really tall. It was just stuff bubbling out of it, you know, umbrellas and straws, little men with hats on and stuff. And I said, I'll have one of those, and I did. Uh, I had like eight of those that night because <laughs> they tasted good. And because somewhere, you know, like between one and nine, that little thing hit me right there. That little, oh yeah. You know, oh. 
just what I've been waiting for. They didn't tell me about this. It wasn't in the movies, you know. There it is. There it is. And, uh, and I love it. You know, who cares about the birthmark? Who cares about these bib overalls? Who cares that I live, you know, in a 22-foot house trailer with five other people? Who cares? If you don't like what I'm doing, you know, just kiss my derriere. <laughs> That's what alcohol made me feel like. It made me feel like, you know, like I never, like I, like all the things that I was afraid of and all the things I hated and all the things I resented and all of the awful things that I knew were going to happen went away. That night I also had a couple of other minor problems, you know. I was sitting on the bartender when I just projectile vomited all over <laughs> I don't remember, I remember they told me on a Monday, that was a Friday, they dropped me off at my, where I lived and they went on. But that Monday morning uh, they picked me up for work and they told me what I'd done. You know, that I sort of redecorated the piano <laughs> and the ladies room and the car they took me home in. And I was very sick the next morning. Just deadly ill and uh, kneeling on my knees you know and sweating and just sick you know I just examined what I could remember of the night before and I made a promise an absolute promise I had spent I was making 75 cents an hour I think or 50 cents an hour and I was paying 75 cents a drink and I, I couldn't believe that my money was very important to me I knew it was going to buy my way out of Tahunga, and it was going to buy me the right clothes, and it was going to buy me self-respect, and it was going to buy me happiness and power and my own way. So money was a real important thing to me. And I counted it, and somehow I had spent, you know, 75 cents like nine dimes, and I was making 50 cents an hour. And I thought about that. And I thought, well, I'll just have to work harder. <laughs> have to get a second job. <laughs> That's really what I thought, kneeling on this cement floor in front of this John. The other thing I thought was there was something wrong with that stuff with the umbrellas, you know, and the straws and those little red cherries. Just don't ever, just tell them to leave those out next time. <laughs> I had no idea what I was drinking, but I knew it worked. I might tell you that, um, in all the years I drank, I never, ever have eaten another maraschino cherry. I, it's just a little something I don't do. <coughs> I left Tahunga and I went to work and my aim was money and property and prestige and power. And, uh, and I was lucky, you know, for someone without an education, someone who can't read music, couldn't then. Um, through a series of circumstances, I, I got a job in the recording business and uh, I went to work for a, a very successful recording company and uh, I started making a lot of money and uh, I started, you know, wearing the right clothes and having my nails done and my hair spun into curls and my massage every week and um, 
and I started dropping in to bars on my own. Never mind the working girls, you know, that I worked with. They were well behind me. And I started dropping into bars on my own. I knew I couldn't go at lunch. In the recording business, you really don't have lunch because sometimes you go to work at 2 in the morning and then, you know, it's 5 in the afternoon, my kind of life. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I knew I, if I was working, I couldn't drink. I knew that in the beginning. And uh, so I'd wait till we'd cut or done whatever we did. And then I, if, if the bars were closed, I always had a, a bottle. And, uh, and if the bars weren't closed, I went there. It's where I learned all my social graces was in bars. I loved them. As my uh, disease progressed, there was a man who owned that recording company was very kind. I was good at what I did. Uh, I loved music, and um, and I could sell anybody anything. You know, I sold songs and I bought songs, and uh, my drinking progressed. Somewhere in there, I got married. I married a nice guy. He was not an alcoholic. Uh, I thought that I could buy what my concept of love was. I had no idea what love was until I was sober about three years. I had desire confused with love. I had fear confused with love. I had ego confused with love. Didn't know that, know it now. But, uh, I married this nice guy, you know. I'll tell you now, I remember how I got him to propose to me. <laughs> we had gone to his parents' place for a little, you know, dinner and a drink. Oh, why? And the next thing I remember is he's driving home and my head is under his right leg and he's driving the car. And I came out of the blackout and, and I said, what are you, you know? And he said, if you ever, ever behave like that again in front of me or anyone I know, I will never speak to you again. My husband really never made really substantial statements like that a lot, but he meant it and I knew it and I didn't know what I had done. And I went home that night, and as all good alcoholic women know, put the guilt on them. And I did. The next morning I got up, and I took every piece of jewelry and every little box he had made for me. He was a very caring man, and every little thing he'd ever given give me. And I told him to come to my apartment and take him. Go. And then... <laughs> And he came in and I had a couple of little shooters to settle my upset stomach down. And, uh, and I backed him into marrying me. And he did. And uh, we were married for nine years. In that marriage, um, this illness that I have, you know, I'm, I'm glad I heard Pat again tonight. I'm glad I finally, at nine years sober, went to an Al-Anon meeting because I know today what I did to this man. I thought, you know, 
nine years, what's nine years, and I paid the bills, and I was a successful recording executive, and you had everything you wanted, and you hurt me. Well, that's not quite the way it was. He tried to be a husband, and I had no idea about being a wife. It's only recently I've learned to do a casserole, and when I was eight, I learned to run the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> you know, I don't do stuff like that. I can't. I don't know how, I don't want to do it, and I'm busy. I'm really busy. <laughs> Where are my blue socks? How would I know? I didn't wear them. <laughs> Darling. <clears throat> In that marriage, uh, you know, I wanted to be a wife. I wanted him to love me. And I wanted it to look right for the people out there. And so I, uh, I tried. And, uh, but I just, you know, I'd get out of that recording studio and I'd make that famous drunk call. I don't know, I've heard it, I, I think a lot of us made him. Hi honey, I'm gonna be a little bit late coming home tonight. We have some extra work here at the studio. But I'll see you about 7.30, maybe eight. Don't hold dinner. And uh, I cruised into one of those red velvet sewers. I, w I had stepped up from the kind of bars I really like, a working man's bar, to the ones that are always red velvet and they have a naked lady painted over the thing in some phony gilt frame. And the bartender wears a pinky ring and measures drinks with a jigger. <laughs> and he doesn't drink, you know, he won't flip you further. But I'd go in there because I thought if I drank in the better places, I'd be better, you know. <laughs> and I'd end up, you know, it'd be two o'clock in the morning. And I would have charmed some little fellow, <laughs> bought him enough drinks and told him enough lies and the lights would go out. And, and uh, we'd just step out on into the parking lot and uh, live deeply in the back seat of my big car. And then I'd just like dump him out on the asphalt and go home. <clears throat> go home to a man I wanted to love me. Go home to a man that was a good husband. Go home to a man, you know, with my eyelashes stuck to my forehead and my bra hanging on the rearview mirror and one shoe gone. I have more one shoes than most people forget. You know, and I try to park quietly. It was four o'clock in the morning and I can remember a hundred times saying, Maybe he won't notice, you know? <laughs> At nine years, my husband came to me and he didn't talk about drinking. We didn't know that there was a spiritual malady and a physical illness called alcoholism. We didn't know there was a place called Al-Anon or Alcoholics Anonymous. And he came to me and he just told the truth. He said, you know, um, I can't live with you the way you are. And he left. He told me to leave. He told me to leave. And I left. And uh, in that marriage, before he ever did that, um, as a direct result of my drinking, I killed my child. You know, as a direct result of my drinking, I destroyed almost 10 years of this man's life in a profession that requires 
before I met Cliff, some sort of dignity. <clears throat> he was a teacher and a professor. Cliff, you know, eased my guilt a lot when I met him. I thought, God, it's okay. And Pat survived. I went on to acquire things and property and prestige and lots of other stuff. And I also went on to drink. I had no idea what was wrong with me, but pretty soon, you know, I'd find myself up in the Hollywood Hills uh, on a Tuesday morning trying to find my way back down to my car on Sunset. And I wouldn't remember how I got there. I thought maybe I ought to see a psychiatrist. I did. I saw several psychiatrists. And when they didn't work, I went to a child psychiatrist. I thought, it must be in my childhood somewhere. I don't remember much going to psychiatrists about two or three shooters to get there, so I could tell them what they needed to know, and uh, I didn't like listening to them. After about three or four times, you know, I'd write a $100 check, and uh, they wouldn't tell me what was wrong. And I remember two or three times just grabbing one by the front of the saying, I've been paying you, you know, $100 a week for eight months. What the hell is wrong with me? Give me a name, and I can fix it. I can do it. I'm here to tell you, you know, whether, whether good or not, when I did my fourth step, uh, I'm a self-made woman. <laughs> I was. But you cannot do this one alone. You cannot. I couldn't. I tried. I spent a lot of money and a little money, and I looked here and I looked there, and I read self-help books, and I did psycho-cybernetics, and I stood on my head in a corner and dislocated my neck <laughs> and breathed deeply. And I found guys along the way that were going to fix me. And I went to Esalon, and they put me like in a white toga. I wrote them a check for $10,000 up on those cliffs in Northern California. And they put little white flowers in my hair. And I wore a white toga, and I went barefoot, and I ate bean sprouts and brown bread and uh and they told me now the way we're going to fix you here is you're going to take your problem and put it in the chair and talk to it <laughs> and then you're going to get in the chair and the problem's going to talk back to you <laughs> i looked for the refund desk and there isn't one at Esalon. And I, if I, you know, if I knew what my problem was, I sure as hell wouldn't write you a $10,000 check and come up here and wear this bathrobe and get these things tied in my hair and ohm, ohm, and float in these hot tubs. <laughs> the bad thing, they don't drink there. And you know, about three days of that, and I looked around, all these people were just chewing on those sprouts, and they'd just be happy with each other, and they were hugging and kissing. And they, and they were centered, and they were oming, and they knew what their problem was, and they just talked to that chair. And <laughs> three days about not drinking and not knowing. I thought, well, what am I going to put in that chair if I knew what my problem was? I thought, what I need is just a little something to help me. <laughs> and I found the liquor store in the Enchanted Forest. You know, nothing to know. You know where the liquor store is. You look 
the minute you enter town, your eyes are like radar. And I went down there and I got me a half gallon bottle of vodka in my white toga and the little flowers in it. And the guy there says to me, oh, you know, they don't drink up. I guess he recognized the universe. They don't drink up there. And I said, you're telling me? Just give me that half gallon bottle of vodka behind you and leave me alone. Just me. And I, you know, I got centered right away. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, I just tucked the legs off of that chair. Just Yeah, and I helped everybody. I know, I just tell you how to do this chair stuff. <clears throat> it was when I left Esalon, turned in my bathroom with my little white flowers, and I got in that car to drive back down Highway 1, a beautiful drive, one of the most beautiful places in the world, state I live in, and it was driving away from there, you know. I went on to continue to destroy what little I had, but I know when I bought them down. You know, we don't always bought them out sleeping in the back of our car, or uh, sitting on a street curb. I bottomed out driving away from Esalen, driving down that road with an open bottle of vodka beside me. I've given this a lot of thought, and I've shared it with my first sponsor. And that is that I knew, you know, right in here, that no, it wasn't going to get any better. It was always going to be this way. I would never be able to develop a relationship with another human being that was real. I'd be a, a two-week stand or a one-night stand with friends, with men, that I'd always wake up in the morning feeling like I wanted, like, a, like I was alone in the world. That I, that I would always feel disconnected from other human beings and from life. That I would always carry in my gut this rock, you know, Cliff talked about it last night. And I'd always carry these secrets, the simplest secrets, where I came from, who my parents were, what I did to get where I was, why my husband left, why I have no children. These were deep secrets, and I would never, ever be able to share them with anyone. I just knew the rock was there. I know loneliness. I know like every drunk I really know, sitting in a crowd full of 200 people, feeling lonely, knowing, knowing, you know, just lonely. That's when I bottomed out. And I came back to Los Angeles and I, I was, uh, I got another job and I went to work and uh, and the disease progressed. I reached a point where I could not enter my house. I was terrified to go in the house, and if I got in there, I couldn't get out. And uh, one day, I just decided, well, I'm going to be like a free spirit. Never mind trying to pay the phone bills and, and the rent and the car, and never mind going to work and trying to look good. Never mind undressing publicly in the cock and bull where everybody else in the industry goes for a drink. Never mind getting arrested. Never mind walking across Coenga Boulevard 
trying to keep your stockings up on a Sunday morning and leaving the apartment of someone you'll never see again and don't know. And having a cabbie look at you and say, wouldn't, give me a, wouldn't take me as a fair. I'll just go down to Venice Beach and be a free spirit and play the flute to the sunset. Because <laughs> I can do this by myself, thank you. I can do it alone. Get away from me. Some people might take that as self-will. <laughs> Some people might recognize it as fear and anger and self-pity. My sponsor was kind enough to point that out to me. <laughs> and that's where Booze took me. I went down to Venice Beach. I took my two dogs and my Siamese cat, and I put them in my car, and I drove down there for an afternoon. And about eight months later, <laughs> I came to one morning, and, and I, I needed a drink. I had started doing things. You know, there's two, two places if you ever get to Venice Beach. The front is Oceanfront Walk for the tourists and the people who love beauty. And about 50 yards back, there's Speedway Alley. You remember Speedway Alley? And uh, the real stuff happens on Speedway Alley. It's dark back there and real business occurs. And the other people are roller skating in their costumes out front. The night before, I had done some stuff on Speedway Alley that uh, I wasn't raised to do. We might have been poverty-stricken, but I grew up with good values. My parents taught me how to work. I sponsor people today who are 26 years old and don't know how to work. They gave me those things. They gave me values. They taught me that this birthmark is just there. I am the one who tried to hide it. I am the one who couldn't live with it. And it was in sobriety that I got free with it. In any case, that night, I just... You know, I was doing stuff for the promise of a drink. Just the promise of a drink. Enough just now to get the nerves right and not be sick. And, uh, and that morning I woke up and it was just your average day down at Venice Beach. And, uh, and this is what happened to me. So that if you take your path, whatever it may be, know that anything can happen and that if you're here today tonight and you're sober maybe you're like me and you didn't do much to get it i uh i woke up and i was shaking and i was sick i was very sick <clears throat> i needed a drink and uh, i looked out at that was overcast it was in june and um uh, and a thought came to me. You know, a thought came to me. And the thought was, you know, maybe if you went to Alcoholics Anonymous, you could get a little fix. I mean, that's what they do, I guess. And you could learn how to, like, panhandle out here on the street, make a few bucks, get back on your feet. That is the thought I had. I had no idea where Alcoholics Anonymous was. If you had told me that I could make a phone call and two sober women would come and take me to a meeting, I would have run in the opposite direction. I would have thought, it's Jonestown time. <laughs> that isn't the way it happened for me. I, uh, what happened was, I, uh, I remembered that when I was drinking and living on the high side of town, 
I used to drive down Sepulveda Boulevard, and uh, there's a stop at Ohio Street, and uh, I thought, sometimes I made the stop. <laughs> and when I did, I'd look out of the corner of my eye and I'd see a little yellow house there. And I'd see people going in and out, there all kinds of people, at all hours of the day and night. There was no marquee. There was no advertising. And that morning I thought, that must be where AA is, <laughs> all 30 of you. <laughs> in the 11 western states. <laughs> you can be dying of this disease, I was, and be arrogant. I was and sometimes still am. And I packed that car in and put those dogs in there, you know, and the cat laying on the dashboard. And uh, I buttoned up what I had. I thought I had enough coverage. And uh, I drove to, I tried to find Ohio and Spalvada. It was early in the morning and I got to that meeting at the Ohio Street Clubhouse about 8.30 <laughs> at night. It was be fog. I had lived in that area for many years. Couldn't find it. Parked in the middle of the parking lot and approached the door of a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. There was a guy standing there with a, like a mouthful of white teeth. <laughs> and he looked like he'd stolen a piano. <laughs> When you're feeling like I was feeling, you know, it's like, get away. I'll tell you what I looked like when I got here. I never want to forget it. On June the 23rd this year, I will pull it out and put it on again and walk into a meeting to celebrate the gift I was given here, whether I wanted the gift or not. The gift I was given. I was wearing an old pair of black pajama bottoms, urine soaked, and a blouse with no buttons on it. It had one button right about there, and I'd just taken all the other buttonholes and put them right up there on that one button. <laughs> I was wearing a pair of high-heeled springulators with just the little rubber bands across the toe, queen of the walk, and uh, the heel was gone on one. And I was trying to walk like you wouldn't notice it. Somewhere, we lose a lot in, in our drinking, and I'd lost most of my teeth. I had about 11 teeth, and they were like all critically spaced. You know? So that if the unusual occasion should arise where I was going to smile, I'd have to think, let's see now, do I put my... <laughs> so they don't see this thing. My hair was like, there was, like had, it was matted little matte things in it <laughs> and I smelled funny that happens when you don't bathe for seven or eight months <clears throat> I smelled funny and I looked funny and I was funny and the man at the front door this is really important to me he put his hand out to me you know just the way I was the way I was, the way I smell, the way my, the curl to my lip. And uh, he said, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now this guy, you know, he's half my age. He had rosy cheeks, rimless glasses, slacks with creases you could slice cheese with, <laughs> power tie, 
Harris tweed jacket. Give me a <laughs> You know that feeling like you've made, this is a severe error. <laughs> Where I got sober, they know newcomers. He knew what I was, because he was one. That's why he took me just the way I was. He knew what I was. People down in Venice and the police, you know, when I kick them or beat them up and they put me, they didn't care what I was, but they weren't one. So they didn't know. They didn't have that sudden opening of the heart and I think the soul that connects us if we've never met before, if we're an alcoholic. He did. And he was really smart because I just thought I'll just spin on my one wheel and <laughs> took my hand. We have a thing uh, that I learned in the Pacific group where I got sober, where you lock your elbow. It, you can maneuver a lot of people that way. People who want to kiss you, you know, and slobber on your newcomers. And guys, you want to thank you for your talk. Thank you. When you get sober in the Pacific group, you learn how to live <laughs> and how to handle almost any problem because we all get there as big time problems for sort of what AA doesn't want anymore, you know. <clears throat> That's what he did to me. He locked his arm, and he sort of shot me through this little narrow doorway. You know, I'm about six feet tall, and I got some movement here. And it was like, you know, through the doorway, and they were waiting, you know, I thought. 250 sober alcoholics, all talking at the same time, drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, and uh, I looked around and, you know, I just thought, don't make any sudden moves. <laughs> and they will call the cops. And then, you know, whenever the buffet comes out, you're out of here. I thought, this is a bunch of Methodists. They're going to start square dancing here. I mean, not any concept, an old idea, no concept, none. None. That's happened over and over and over again in my sobriety, letting go of old ideas and thinking things I knew things and being just like dumbfounded to find out I might be wrong, that my old ideas just might be phony. But that night, I knew this was serious, you know? I don't remember a whole lot of what was going on, but I remember what happened after that meeting. I needed a drink and I needed to get the hell out of there. And they just kept giving me these little pieces of paper with their phone numbers. I hell, I lived in a car, why do you give me these numbers? <laughs> but I put them in my pocket because I wanted you to like me, right? And, uh, and keep them happy till you get out of here. Foreign feeling. A feeling of warmth and love and humor and hope and discipline and caring. You're my kind of drunk, that's a brand new experience and it's scary and you think they're crazy and you just want out of here because you don't know what they want. At the end of that meeting, a little woman walked up to me, her bracelets jingling and her earrings jingling and I thought her skirt's too short. Me, dressed like I energy. <laughs> Hello? 
she had all her teeth, I noticed. And uh, her cheeks are rosy and her hair's clean. And she's, and people are saying, good night, Marianne. Good night. See you tomorrow. And, and she just tap danced up to me and handed me this card, one more phone number. And she said, here is my name and my phone number. <coughs> Pardon me. We're almost over the air conditioning. <coughs> Uh, here is my name and my phone number. Why don't you meet me at a meeting tomorrow night at 26th and Broadway? I have worked with a lot of newcomers. I hope I keep to. I hope I don't scare too many of them away, and I keep able to work with them. But we have a little thing we do when we're new, and somebody suggests we do something that we think is dumb. At least I found that. I just sort of curled my lip trying to be nice to this lady. Get away from me. <laughs> and she carried the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to me. That's why I talk about what happened. If you listen, how many thousand people are here tonight and listen in your home group meeting and you listen when you visit somewhere else and you just listen, there is some kind of magic, some kind of power, some kind of thing that happens among us drunks, something that governs us that we get it the way we get it. We get it the way we can hear it. We get it from one other alcoholic who can give it to us. That night I got it straight away. You know, when I curled my lips, she said, why don't you get your head out of your ass? <laughs> For Why don't you get your head out of your ass for, she got my attention. I, I don't remember a whole lot except the funny guy at the front door who liked me. I thought, this is the sick man. And this woman, and she said, why don't you get your head out of your ass for, I believe you may be, you may be an alcoholic woman like me. And you can tap dance out of here in that little outfit you've got on and go on living the way you're living and feeling the way you're feeling and doing the stuff you're doing. Or you can meet me at a meeting tomorrow night at 26th and Broadway and you might feel some better. And she did not wait for me to debate the issue. She spun on her little tippy toes and split. Jingling bracelets and earrings and all just split. That's one drunk opening it up and passing on the gift. She did not give me a neck rub and a chocolate cookie <laughs> and tell me she was going to love me till I loved myself. <laughs> she gave me the benefit of her experience, like the book talks about, drunk and sober. The most valuable thing she had that night was the memory of what it was like. She knew how to talk to me. She knew where I was coming from. There is no more remorse for me in Alcoholics Anonymous, for it is the experience that she made me look at in an inventory and in the things I did daily. 
in the depressions and in the highs that are the most valuable things I have. Because if I can talk to another drunk, I know how to drink. I know about drinking. I know about loneliness. I know about losing it. I know about making it. I know about the highs. I know. And I know where it took me. That is valuable experience. I didn't think so that night. I just hated that woman. I got sober because I decided I'm going to find that little weasel. <laughs> and I'm going to tell her who she's been talking to. <laughs> I went downtown to 26th and Broadway because I was sick. 26th and Broadway was not 15 minutes from where we were. But it kept me sober the next day. The rage, the anger, the sweating, the anxiety, the resentment kept me from drinking. I thought, I'll just get to her, tell her why, and then I'll have a drink. <laughs> and I, because I wouldn't want her not to like me. <laughs> Got to 26th and Broadway, came down that aisle pumping, hot and sweaty and smelly and sick, and there she was. That was not a regular meeting for this woman. But she had told another woman alcoholic that she'd be there. She was there. She was there early. She was standing at the end of the aisle, and I came down that aisle, and I, I just thought, oh. <laughs> she handed me, in return, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I still have that book. And a can of Pepsi-Cola. I hadn't had a Pepsi-Cola in my life, I don't think. She said, drink this, and it was Pepsi-Cola with sugar in it. You know, I feel well, don't get too much sugar. I would have died if I hadn't gotten sugar. I had to have it. I had to have chocolate and cookies, and I had to have like six cans of Pepsi-Cola and 20 cups of coffee, just like to hold it together. <laughs> you know, what is this? We're going to drink Evian, and we're going to do deep breathing. Hell, I, if I do deep breathing, I wet my pants. <laughs> get real. This is dying, you know. This isn't getting ready for Vanity Fair. We're 5% of the population, and we're 95%. Oh, you're obviously dead, and you ought to drink Evian in June. And you should do extra. Hey, <laughs> you meet me down on Speedway Alley in Venice, and we'll talk about it. We'll talk about what's killing me. And my sponsor said, drink it. I thought, geez, maybe I'll tell her after the meeting how much I hate her. <laughs> And that's how my, my, that's how my sobriety started. I followed this woman around. She did not give me tidbits of wisdom. She told me the truth, and she told me, if you don't go to meetings every night, unless your social calendar's all jammed up, <laughs> but she told me. She told me that. And she said, I work all day long, so I'm not gonna be at home in case you get depressed. She said, I'd suggest you get a job. I said, a job? <laughs> I'm sick. I'd been here three days. I know suddenly I was ill. She said, yes, we go to work every day, and we go to a meeting every night. She said, we get to the meeting a half an hour to an hour early, so we're available. And we put our hands out to people, and we don't 
talk too much. She told me that night, she met me that Tuesday night. She said, drink this, read this, sit down, and try not to talk so you don't embarrass yourself. <laughs> well, she told me. But she told me. And that's what she did. She listened. I sat, I'm one of those women, it's embarrassing. I'd like you to think I was just like quizzed right through AA and just got strong and beautiful and wonderful. My hair came back. I, I lost all my, almost all my hair when I got here. It was about four different colors. I was like a Neapolitan ice cream cone. <laughs> and I, I, we, we finally, about the third night, I'll tell you about the love in Alcoholics Anonymous and about the strength and the power. Uh, three women from my home group, my then home group, took me to a house that was really a nice place. One was a lawyer and one was a waitress and one was like a, a wife who like knew how to iron and wear the magazine. Really. They were all drunk. Drunks. All drunks. Sober women. And they uh, like peeled those clothes off me. And uh, they uh, cut those like big rats out of my hair. And uh, they put me in a bathtub and they gave me a bath. And they got me clean. And they told me, that's what we do here. <clears throat> we start with the practical things, with the outside. And uh, they gave me this purple bag and a pair of navy blue knee socks. You better laugh or something's wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> me in navy blue knee socks, cable knit knee socks, and brown wedgies. <laughs> Thank you, Julie Caffey, wherever you are. She was about my size and sober many years more than me. They put me in that purple bag and those knee socks and, and, and those shoes. And they gave me a bath and they washed me up and they said, now we start. Now we start. We go to meetings. We put our hand out. We get a job at that meeting. You know, like the Statler Hilton doesn't come in and set up the chairs and make our refreshments. We do that. Get a job here. Nobody wanted me, you know. I cannot tell you the friends I made slicing cheese at the Monday night meeting. I cannot tell you the love and the kindness when, when uh, you know, you work a year on a commitment in this group I got sober, you're going to slice that cheese for a year whether you live or die, and uh, you're going to be there on time. And uh, the woman that I worked with became a friend of mine, but she was like one of those people who had little shiny coins in her loafers and every hair was just bright and little fingernails. And I was like, look out, mama. I mean, I, and she said, we, I chopped up that cheese and threw it on the thing. And she said, no, no. I lined up every little piece of that cheese and every little cracker and then another little roach. She's trade this big. Because newcomers where I got sober eat there. I did. And uh, we put the cheese out and people would come down the aisle. I was about eight months sober by then. And uh, they'd try to touch that cheese tray. <laughs> and I'd lead out that one. I'd say, don't touch the cheese. Eat the kiwi fruit. And there was a guy who was the crew chief there, sober a long time, 
and he took me out the back door of Ohio, the Ohio Street Clubhouse one night, and he says, Koenka? <laughs> Try to be kind. <laughs> And I promise you, we'll let you arrange cheese for as long as you want to arrange cheese. <laughs> Before I close, I'll tell you that living sober, I've had nose cancer, and I learned from my sponsor and sober members of a home group, so what? I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> they're either going to cut your nose off or they're not. <laughs> Those are the kind of answers I got. <laughs> they put tubes up my nose. Cliff saw me once I visited his own group with my equipment. <laughs> and uh, they put a, this tube in my ear and a tube sticking out here and bandages and tubes up my nose. But the most important part was I was now three years sober and I couldn't wear my makeup. I had to come to you with the birthmark. I had to come to you as Kawenga Begay, the, the real thing. I had to you know, find out if all this stuff you did for me, all this bathing and teaching and discipline and playing volleyball. <laughs> hey, took me eight months to hit the ball. They would just say, move to the next position, Kawenga. <laughs> I'll tell you what, when I was eight months sober, there was this woman like Susie N, and she was on the old timers team. I still on the newcomers team. And uh, she, she missed a ball and she said, God, I guess I'm getting old, but I'm not as old as Kawinga. <laughs> you, that was the birth of a volleyball spiking hot volleyball ball. <laughs> The next time that ball came over, I was up and spiking it. <laughs> volleyball? What the hell is volleyball? If you don't play it in a bar, I don't know it. <laughs> learn to do, learn to roast hot dogs for 200 sober alcoholics and make lemonade and chop up the, the so if you come to my house for dinner, you get mystery meat and oh, wow, I haven't learned much else. It was then cancer of the nose. You know, they were getting those rubber prosthesis out at Cedar sinai just edging him toward me. <laughs> and I said, oh, I don't think so. And I went to my sponsor and I said, I can't give AA talks. I can't go to meetings looking like this. She reminded me one more time. One more time, we took you just the way you were when you got here. And we've been doing it for three years. What makes you think we're going to stop? What makes you think we're not going to live? What makes you think you're different than anyone else? That life is not going to come here and you're not going to learn to deal with it. The room is full of people sober who are dealing with life. And I said, but I'm so depressed. She said, wear bright colors. <laughs> I did. I mean, what else are you going to say?
a drunk understands that. I couldn't hold a job and she said, you know, there may be something you're doing wrong. <laughs> try getting there on time. Try not explaining to them what it is they should be doing. Try not feeling you're working below your colleague in life. Take that three fifty an hour and buy a pair of shoes. I'm sick of looking at those boxers. Yeah. I pack ratchet wrenches. I have no idea what they are. Still don't. Don't care. I have never awakened one morning and thought, oh, now for my spiritual experience, I'm going to find out what ratchet wrenches are. How to get twelve in a box. I this brilliant, you know, leader in the management of the record business, I could get nine, fourteen. I could not get twelve in the back. And on those rare occasions, I packed them on a line, you know, like with other people. These people that did not, they didn't speak English, but they could sure pack ratchet wrenches. And they would, you know, I would get once a week, twelve of them in a box. And they would all go, Ooh. <laughs> they were happy for me, and I hated them. And one day I lost it. I said, you know, I remember Pearl Harbor. They don't know what Pearl Harbor is. You know, it's 40 years later. I said, and, and I don't have to do this for a living. I don't want you to know, you know, that I'm a human being and I'm starting again. I'm starting this time to learn. I'm starting this time to maybe look in here and open it up. I'm starting this time to trust. I'm starting this time to live. I am starting this time to seek and find a power that'll help me stop drinking that'll keep me on days when they say yes and we're just going to use this rubber nose isn't it cute to run running down the street on beverly boulevard and having three or four martinis just to get me through it see i haven't done that for almost 12 years i've gone back to work it no don't clap thank god and alcoholics anonymous i didn't do nothing you heard me when i got here i walked in and another sober alcoholic took over, and then like 250 others took over. And the answer was, I, I tried to minimize it. Oh, you know, I just don't feel good, and I don't have any cigarettes. And they say, if you talk to your sponsor, see, they send you back to the source. I say, well, she doesn't understand. Well, you better tell her. Give her another try. I don't want to share in your meeting. Well, we'll just sit here until you do. <laughs> Seven minutes at the Ohio Street Clubhouse. I'm at the podium and they're like, and, and it, where I got sober, people don't talk in meetings. It's quiet. And the clock's back there, and I thought, <laughs> they, Seven minutes later, I said what my sponsor had told me to say. My name's Kawinga. I'm an alcoholic and I'm glad I'm here. And I stepped out and the room was thunderous with applause. <laughs> they wouldn't let me do it that way anymore. They made me walk through fear. They made me make my bed. I said, 
My sponsor said, are you making your bed every night? I said, flip my car. <laughs> There's an answer. I didn't ask you where your bed was. I asked you if you made it. The other thing, when I was 90 days sober, I had a friend who counted my days. I couldn't read when I got here, and I couldn't count. I couldn't keep track. I threw like old calendars away, thinking I was wrong. I was nuts. But I had a guy named Marv Albright. He's still sober today. He's in my class, class of '83. And Marv would count my days, and then I'd walk in to the meeting, and my sponsor'd say, "How many days you got today?" And I'd say, "27." She'd say, "Good." And uh, one night I walked in, and Marv said, uh, "I said, Marv, how many days? How many days?" He said, "90 days." And I said. Are you sure, Marvin? I knew he was right because he had four months more than I, which is like being Bill Wilson. <laughs> Are you sure, Marvin? He said, yeah. Yeah. And my sponsor came up to me and she said, how many days you got today? As if she didn't know. As if the love and the 15 years of collecting the experience and waiting, you know, for somebody just like you. She knew, but she says, how many days you got? I said, 90 days. She said, that's great. She said, uh, how'd you get 90 days? And I thought that, you know, the newcomers that I associated with, we all had the answers ready. We decided them among ourselves. And, uh, and <laughs> that was the wrong question is what it was. And I said, well, because I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and Marianne has a favorite phrase, which is horseshit. And uh, oh, she's 25, she may have cleaned it up a little bit. She really meant it when she said it, and I really felt it when she said it. And uh, she said, what have you been doing different? I mean, like, have you spun your way back into the music business, and you're going to the gym every day? You have a job and a place to live? And I said, no. Well, she said, have you suddenly had a spiritual uprising and you're just full of God? I said, no. She said, well, what have you been doing different? And I said, I've been saying those funny prayers. See, my idea of praying was, I was told to ask God in the morning to keep me sober, and I was told when I went to bed at night to thank him. That was just too much for me. I said, give me a break. But my sponsor said to do it, and I was so afraid of her. <coughs> she weighed about 120 pounds. <laughs> and I picked men up bigger than me and thrown them against the wall when they asked me to pass the ashtray. And this woman, I knew this woman knew the truth. I knew this woman was honest. I knew this woman was a drunk, and I knew she meant business. I had no idea she loved me. I didn't understand about love then. And uh, I said, well, I've been saying those dumb prayers. She said, what, would a, what else in this world would give a woman like you 90 days without a drink and a group of people who like you? She said, you keep saying those dumb prayers. And I have. And I have. I believe in the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
I am not, you know, a spiritual giant. I am an example. My experience is yours. You can see me. I am here. The people who got me sober in the front row, I'm telling you the truth. This, this thing that is here, whatever it is, is in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't have to be a mental giant. You don't have to own and wear a white bathrobe with tie little flowers in your hair. And when you can't make that contact, do what my sponsor told me to do when I told her I couldn't read. She says, find somebody whose shoes match <laughs> and ask him to read it to you. Like what they say here tonight, find somebody with a blue ribbon and uh, you can ask them where the bathroom is. Don't ask anybody with a green one, you know. It's the state, we need direction here. I am here and I am an example and I am no different than the people that talked in, before me here and uh, in the Edina room or Idina. It looked almost like a medical phrase and I didn't want <laughs> that room. Tomorrow I'll return to Los Angeles to a job where I walked out and I was asked at nine years sober to come back to work. Uh, we designed palaces, real ones, you know, like palaces. And, uh, and part of my job when I went back there was that this time was to empty, to clean the cap boxes. And I had learned in Alcoholics Anonymous how to carry the toilet paper to the Saturday night meeting, 40 rolls on the bus. I had learned how to keep my hands off the cheese tray. I had learned how to buff the floor. I had learned how to give another drunken woman a bath. I had learned how to live. And I had learned that whatever's put in front of me, I can do with the help of the power of my fellows and God. I went back there and I emptied cap boxes. And three years later, I managed that business again. And I didn't do anything except go to meetings and try not to kill my boss. <laughs> and try not to say things so I don't embarrass myself. And try to be kind. And try to remember that whether I have a job or I don't, whether I have a car or a place to live or anything, I have Alcoholics Anonymous as it is written in the book, and people, and now we talk about the big words, who love me. They love me for what I am, not for what I think I ought to be. What you see is what you get here. There is no place like it in the world for a drunk. And I thank God for that. And Dr. Bob and Bill Wesley and that they let women in. This is not a democratic society here. They let us in. Our men let us in. And I am a sober woman, and I want other women to be able to follow. And so I tell you, 
that I am a sober woman and that I am very grateful to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you.